Welcome back to another episode of the podcast, From the Depths of Darkness to the Light of Success. I am your host, Chris Swick, and on this podcast, we talk about mental health, addictions, ADHD, eating disorders, and really anything anyone's afraid to talk about, we talk about it on the show. I believe everyone's story is valuable at the end of the day. does not matter what walk of life you come from. You're all welcome on my platform. If you could head over to the, Insta- or the Instagram page at Depths of Dark Side, check out my content over there. You can also hit up the YouTube channel from the Depths of Darkness to the latest success. Hit subscribe, turn on the notifications, and check out the show over on Spotify and Apple. But with no further ado, we're going to talk to an intervention guy today. We got Bobby Newman on the show. Tell us a little bit about your story and why you got into the intervention realm of things, Bobby. I grew up in a very small town in southern Oklahoma in the U.S. And when people talk about small towns, I usually say that people will go, oh, yeah, I grew up in a small town. How many people? They'll say, oh, three or four thousand. And I'm talking, well, OK. And anyway, it's, I, 648 people. <laughs> grew up in. And there are smaller towns than that, believe it or not, but uh, 648 people, 13 churches within the city limits. <laughs> so we went to church, which is a good thing. But, um, you know, we grew up very rural community and got into drinking and doing drugs when I was about 11, 12 years old, and then started really consistently drinking when I was about 15, 14, 15. And then moved on up by the time I graduated high school to smoking marijuana. And then I went to college to play football, got introduced to stimulants. And just one thing led to another. I did graduate a trade school. I didn't, I finished one year of college, maybe uh, probably the equivalent of two years of college before it was all said and done. And then, and then I completed a trade school and things keep kept escalating as far as the substance abuse goes. And by the time I'm 35 years old, I was looking at seven years in a federal penitentiary and I got caught. There was obviously a lot of things that we had done on the criminal side of things, but I was actually going to work one day on a federal uh, army base, on an army base and got pulled over by the MPs and got caught with methamphetamine, marijuana, and a loaded firearm. And I was running a crew. I was running a shop and I was running a crew of men out on the job site and, and picked up a pretty hefty charge with the federal government and was able to, smart enough to walk in and uh, uh, negotiate a seven-year plea deal, a uh, uh, seven-year uh, $300,000 uh, sentence down to two weeks and $2,500. But I was stupid enough to continue, violate my probation to the point of whether it got to the point where I either had to do something or I was going to end up in going to prison. They basically told me, if you violate one more time, you're going to prison. And so I ended up, by fortunately, my sister had um, been doing research for me, found a really good program. And my dad got involved and they both started trying to convince me to go. And even though I did turn him down at the beginning, I ended up going and it turned my life around. I never would have thought I would have had the changes that I did by going, but I'm really happy I did. And as I was going through the program, a guy came and was there and he started doing a prevent presentation that he does to kids on drug education and drug prevention. And I thought, man, that's really good information that these kids don't have. I'd never had, it was along the lines of what I had learned in the treatment program, but also it was presented in a way that the kids could understand it. So I decided then I was wanted to get involved with that. And I had zero public speaking experience. Then that was another kind of a goal that I wanted to have was be able to speak and not be completely frightened to death in public. And so after I graduated the program, I got into prevention and then it led into other bigger responsibilities with 
admissions into the program. We ended up setting up two drug education programs that reached over 650,000 kids over a 10-year period. Now, was this out in Oklahoma? It was in Oklahoma and the surrounding states. And then I went to Hawaii and helped set up a program out there as well. And then we able we got some funding to be able to get a study done to where this became an evidence-based program by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. So got phenomenal results with it. So I was really happy to be involved with that. And then that, that led into, as I was in Hawaii, people in the, on the mainland would lead, would say, Hey, we need, we've got a guy, we got a family that needs your help. And I started doing interventions out there and uh, on a consistent basis. And uh, so that's where it got a lot me. I had worked with interventionists and I had been in the field of admissions and getting people into treatment on the treatment side of it. But being, but when I went to Hawaii, I was actually on the outside and bringing people in. And I did that. I worked in a facility in a capacity in a network of treatment facilities for about 16 years. And then in 2017, I went out on my own. So um, I ended up here doing, now doing interventions since 2017. And I do them for a variety of treatment centers around the country. And how does someone reach out to you? You know, I've watched the show on A&E intervention. Was it something similar to that? It's similar. They, there's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes to prepare for a suggestion yeah. like that. And they obviously want you to see the dramatic parts of the intervention. Most of the interventions are don't necessarily happen that way, but they're, the structure is similar, right? And you, but there's a lot of things that I watch and I'm like, well, I would have done this differently. I don't know what they're looking for in the, to get the effects of the show or whatever. But most of the time we try to, we try to approach the person in a manner to which would be as accepted as possible, but it's always inevitably ends up with, especially if they're very resistant, you could have done this differently. You don't need to do it like this. And you guys, if those things worked, we would do them that way. <laughs> but they, unfortunately, there's a certain circumstances that you have to do the best you can with what you have. And sometimes it's can appear like it's a little bit of a sneak attack or whatever, but I very rarely, most of the time, I always ask the family, well, if you tell them that we're coming, what do you think they're going to do? Do you think they'll show up? And most of them will say no. <laughs> Nine times out of 10, they won't. Like I remember even just an active addiction and stuff like that. Like you mentioned earlier, your dad or your parents reaching out and wanting to help you and you're shutting it down. Everyone's the same. You have to want to do it on your own of the day. You have to want to make that choice to go get the help you need or the help you want and stuff like that. It all comes from the inside. It all starts with the person that's going through it. You can't force anyone to do anything at the end of the day. Right. Yeah. And that's the thing. You're right. And people will say, you can't force me into treatment. And I'm like, you know what? You're right. I cannot. Nobody can. The only two places that will hold you against your will are a jail or a psychiatric hospital. And then you have to be doing something more bad. Or the morgue, exactly. And the uh, the treatment center won't even take you if you're not willing. We just wanted an opportunity to communicate how we, much we care about you. We love you. We want to help you. And there, and the other, at the end of it, I've always prepared the family that this is a very, at a last resort, we're going to tell them, look, if you choose not to get help and get back on a path that we think that you want to be on, then we're going to have to make another decision as far as what we're going to do with our lives, because we're strapped to this problem that we don't want to be strapped to anymore. And they. And we try to present it to them in a way. I was, I'll ask the people, I'll say, what do you want the family to do? And they'll sometimes they'll say, I want them to leave me alone. I said, okay, that's what they're going to do. They're going to leave you completely alone, but they don't want to. 
but that's what they're going to be forced to do because it's kind of, and then they, but they don't quite register to them. That means no money, no, <laughs> no nothing anymore. You're not, we're not supporting this anymore. We're not going to yeah. feed the beast anymore. Like we have been doing inadvertently families end up getting caught up in that type of thing. So yeah, we're not going to have this codependent relationship anymore with you. And does it, do you find the families? You don't find that hard when you're like, you have to set boundaries with your loved ones now. They must find that hard though, too. They do. And the thing of it is like, I tell them, I'm like, look, in matter of fact, during the process of setting it up, I go over these things. And I said, I don't want it to get to that point. I'm going to do everything I can to, for it not to happen, but you have to be willing to, there's got to be a consequence here. If there's no consequences, then I guarantee you, I go and ask your addicted loved one who's been using drugs for 10 years or whatever, if they want to stop using drugs, they're going to say, and there's no, they're going to, most of the bigger percentage of them are going to say no. And there are people that I've talked to that there was really no other, like there's what we call leverage. You probably know, I've heard of that or things that you can help motivate the person. And they, but now my first question is, do you want help? Are you happy with the condition of your life? And they'll, most of them will say in that setting, in that circumstance, they'll say, yes, I do want help. You know, now we have to determine, okay, what's going to be the best help. Cause sometimes their idea of help is mom continuing to give them money or whatever, or maybe I want to do outpatient or maybe I want to, and those are not necessarily bad things. They have, have at least they've acknowledged that they need to do something. But unfortunately, my experience is that you have to be willing to step out of your comfort zone to be able to confront and make some changes and change your environment, even for a short period of time to get out of the environment, to get a new perspective on things. And being in an outpatient setting, they could be better than nothing, but you get to the point of, you got to bring somebody like me in, outpatient usually is not going to, it's not going to have a long-term chance of success. So. 100%. And I like that you say you, know, you have to step out of your comfort zone. It's like anything in, to, in order to succeed and move forward and grow as an individual. You have to step out of that comfort zone, whether it's public speaking, whether it's starting a podcast, whether it's starting a new venture, a new yeah. job, just different things in life, like anything in life. You just got to step out of that comfort zone. That's how you grow at the that's, end of the day. That's right. It's funny. I had a guy I went to a business conference out in Vegas. My son was working for this guy out and down in Miami and they had a big convention out in Vegas. And he, what, what I, I normally would go to those type of things, which I'm glad I did. But one of the guys gets up there and he talks about it. I said, I don't know. People get so worked up about the fact that if they don't try something, if they try something, they're going to not going to be any good at it. Don't worry about it. You suck. <laughs> Just get over it. If you're perfect, if you didn't suck, then you, that gives you something to do to work towards. And then you keep doing it. And I, I remember the first time I tried to play basketball, I removed from a school, a bigger school and, uh, to where they had wrestling and football. They didn't have, but this school that I, the smaller school I moved to, they had wrestling and basketball. I never played basketball. The kids that were already two or three years ahead of me, and I was terrible at it, made fun of me, but I really liked playing. I worked and I, so I didn't care about, I didn't care about what they're making fun of me because I wanted to play basketball more than I wanted to do, cared about them making fun of me. And after, before it was over with, I, I was a pretty good basketball player. I wasn't going to say, but I had, I, it was good enough. I had, I was good enough to where I went out and had fun at it. You know, I could go out in the game and I could contribute to the team winning and I could play, fill my role. And I, I started when I, in the high school team when I was a sophomore. So 
felt like that was a, and I was, all those guys that were making fun of me, I was taking their spot. It was the amount of work I put into it. And, and it, but again, that doesn't, I, and I don't want to dominate the conversation here, but it's what you said is people sometimes don't realize you do have to step out of that cover zone. And if you have your mindset on something and you and try to get people to look at a time where they decided they were going to do something and regardless, and they didn't care what I'm going to know, I'm going to do this. And it's a positive thing. It's I'm going to do it. And they, every, all their considerations about not being able to do it or failing were just gone. There's everybody's had done that in their life, you know, something. So you, if you're not failing, you're, you're not growing. Yeah, exactly. No, it's just, so I always think about that. And I just think about, even me today, I'll think about something I want to do. And I'll go, oh yeah, you got to start somewhere. <laughs> exactly. It was probably like you starting your own intervention business and going out on your own. It was, you probably had tons of anxiety running through you. Is this going to succeed? What's, is this going to flop? Probably all those thoughts in the back of your head. Most people, when they go to on a venture like that, especially starting your own business and stuff like that. And then you just keep building off it and building off it. If one thing doesn't work, all right, let's try this now a different way. Let's go a different avenue. Take that fork in the road this time. All right, that fork didn't work. Let's go the other way. It's all about road mapping. Yeah, I put, keep putting, and that's a that's a, another thing that come to mind is that if I would have known everything I was going to have to go through, I would have been, but I it just, okay, I need to do this. And then I did that, then I would do, like you said, then I do the next thing and then I do the next thing. And it's kind of like I told me a couple of years ago, I was a phrase. He said, it's kind of like eating an elephant. You know how to eat elephant <laughs> one bite at a time. <laughs> exactly. You can't eat the whole thing at once. Bobby, how have you ever experienced, uh, you talked a little bit about the beginning, but have you ex experienced any other terrible occurrences that have really impacted your life significantly? Or was that sort of the turning point in your life with getting pulled over by the police? and those types of things that were going on back in your earlier days. I had m m numerous jail attempts. And the funny part about it was, is when I was a, maybe not funny, but when I was 16, when I was a teenager, there was a couple instances where I got really sick, drinking so much alcohol and I passed out and I got sick. And I had, when your body starts shutting down, it starts trying to rid itself of all the toxins. In other words, you're going to puke, you're going to, things are going to happen. And I had that happen to me and I woke up. But I, and I look back at that moment, I think that was actually a sign right there because people died of alcohol poisoning. Their bodies didn't get rid of the alcohol. My body was getting rid of the alcohol and I woke up in it. I'm, and I, it, that wasn't enough to me, for me to realize, wait a minute, maybe this is excessive. When I was a junior in high school, we flipped up. So we went again, grew up in a small town and we'd go to the next town over to go to the drive-in. That's how I'm dating myself because we drive-in was a big thing back then. And still got those around here and there. They still exist. <laughs> They're still around. But so we would go. So it was a, it was Memorial weekend. And so we didn't have school the next day. So I talked my mom into everybody. All the kids are going to the drive-in on Sunday night. So it's a big thing. So we're going to go. And they, so I didn't have school the next day. She let me go. We went over there and drank and got drunk. And I was in with, we were racing back to the town that we had had a wreck. Went, we were going so fast that. We were in a pickup and we flipped upside down and went the length of a football field upside down in a plowed field. That's how, in a plowed field upside down, and that's how fat and we went the length of a football field. And the cab didn't cave in and we all got out. We all lived and it could have been horrific. It could have been devastating, fatal and uh, nothing. We'd blast it off. It still wasn't a turning point for you. No. And then I 
had broken bones and uh, barroom scuffles. And I've had, we were dealing drugs. We were manufacturing methamphetamine at one point. And none of it was, I look back at those times. I would have told you in 1993, I had four attorneys for four different problems in two states. And I would have told you at that time, oh, I don't have a substance. I don't have a drug problem. Because <laughs> I could pass, I could stay off drugs long enough to pass a drug test if I knew one was coming. And, no, the and real problem was you. The real problem was me. I was still drinking, which alcohol is legal, but yeah, it was just my mindset. I'm thinking all of those were warning signs. All of those were little things telling me I need to change my ways. And then it got to the point where I got a little taste of the jail that I was going to. And, and 80% of the people in that jail, which was a bigger jail, they were all going to prison. And I got a taste of the mentality of those people. And their lifestyle was surrounded by, they call it jailing. It was songs were all about jailing and being in jail and all that. And I'm thinking, I'm back in my mind, I'm thinking, how do I want to figure out how to stay out of here? I don't want to figure out how to live in there. I want to stay, <laughs> how to live out of here. That was probably a very good thing for me because a lot. So anyway, to answer your question, there was many things that happened. Just none of them were, my mindset was like, I look back at that now, what an insane lifestyle. What an insane way to live. I have, we take that we take those two of the substances out and stuff like that. It's a whole different road. Like it's crazy to think that you can have much more fun. I've had some of the best times in my life sober. Yeah. I've never once had a run in with the law since. Yeah. I was like, most of the times for me too, were just when I was fucked up. I don't want to see, I'll, I want to talk to police, but I don't want to have the, I just don't want that in my life. I started having things and you're, like you're saying, like anybody, it's I, my truck, I drive a four wheel drive and I, my thing on it is, especially nowadays with the economy and all that stuff, but I, I'm just gradually fixing it up. It's paid for and I'm just, it's got some miles on it. It looks good, but that's it. it anyway, I back it out of my driveway a few months ago and it just jumped time and I'm literally in my driveway. It jumped time on me, which means I had to go in there and do a lot of motor work on it. But if I wasn't living right, that would have been out in the middle of nowhere on a highway somewhere where I'd been miles away and I'd had to have it. Who knows what I'd had to go through to get it where I needed it to be. And, but it was in my driveway. I'm back, and so I was literally able to pull right, just right, pull right back in my driveway and go call the, my mechanic. And he sent a tow truck over, which I'm thinking, okay, <laughs> I was inconvenienced for a couple of days, but thought, man, it could have been worse. So exactly. you know, I, before when I was on the wrong side of things, as I'm sure you can attest is like, I, if I were going to have a flat tire, it would be in the middle of an inter it would be either blazing heat or in the middle of a thunderstorm, a sleet and rain. And I would be right exactly halfway between any exit I could get off the highway. <laughs> I would have to walk miles either direction to get right. That would be, that was my luck. <laughs> so. Exactly. Hey, it's, it's everyone's luck. You know, that are, uh, we got a horseshoe up our ass, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to dial it back a little bit. I remember you talking about, about the withdrawals from alcohol and stuff like that. I remember having a guest on too, because he had quit abruptly with how much alcohol he was drinking. It actually almost killed him when he quit cold Turkey like that. Yeah. That's, and he actually ended up going to a coma, was in the hospital for almost three weeks. Like he was hallucinating like to that point. And you got to do it under the direction of someone too, just depending on what you're on, what you're using, how much of it and stuff like that. Like you said, don't just quit cold turkey. Like we've, 
I've done that too, quitting cold turkey, like off just some antipsychotics that I was on. Yeah. And that was not a good, pr pretty at all. You know what I mean? Like after doing like my partner doing research, she's like, oh, yeah, you shouldn't have quit cold turkey like you just did or whatever. But I couldn't do it anymore. It was just, yeah. I couldn't live like a zombie and those types of things anymore. I'm happy to be off that. And yeah. that P I get calls all the people there. I'm like, yeah, you've got to really be careful when it comes to these, your body goes into toxic shock and we don't know what's going to, there's all kinds of things that could happen. And there's actually ways that from a nutritional support and people will look at me for advice. I could point them in the right direction, but I don't, I'm not a medical professional and I don't want to be, but I can't tell you you're right. hundred percent correct. I, I was taking, doing an intervention on a guy from, he was in DC and he was going to a rehab center on the West coast out by Los Angeles. So we were going to get on a nonstop flight and he was, we weren't quite sure what was, he was going on with him, but we knew he was drinking heavily. We went into, so we did the intervention. He agrees to go, we go in the bathroom and it looked like he had lost control of his bodily functions in the bathroom. He did. And he, I don't know. He couldn't really tell us what was happening. And right, we get to the, and he said, I haven't been drinking. I haven't drank in so many, and I'm thinking in the back of my mind, I'm like, I got to take that with a grain of salt. We get to the airport. His, he started to shake a little bit. He started to get a little bit, I'm like, there could be some anxiety from either flying or even going to treatment. But at the same time, we're about to get on a five hour flight. And I said, look, how you doing? And he says, I'm okay. And I said, would you like to have something to calm your nerves? It's okay. And so we went to the bar, got him a drink and got, I think it was a beard, maybe one, you know, I said, I don't want you getting smashed, but at the same time, if you need something to settle your nerves, his, and he did, and he was fine. Then we got on the plane. He got to where we needed to be. He was medically okay. We didn't have any issues, but I don't need somebody on a five hour flight going into withdrawal. And it's just not. No, especially when you're 20,000 feet in there or whatever. <laughs> going 500 miles an hour. It's, and the sister got mad at me and she's like, you know that you caused a relapse. I said, listen, I, he said he had been drinking. I said, and you also said you didn't know exactly what <laughs> was going on with him. And I said, if you could find anybody that will contradict my, my approach here, you let me know. Cause I've been doing this for 20 years and nobody in their right mind would put somebody on a five hour flight that's coming off alcohol with that just cold turkey. Nobody would do that that I know of. Especially if they're like, if they're a heavy drinker as well, yeah. for sure. Yeah. So, so, so it wasn't like we were, he was at the bar getting sloshed. He was there. It was a medical, from a medical standpoint, it was the best thing. It was either that or not get on the plane. That's that or go, like you said, go into medical distress on the plane and stuff like that. So it was probably the best thing for him just to, just to get that in the system, just to give him calm, have a little nap and away you go. A little runway there. There we go. Exactly. So what do you want more of in your life today, Bobby? I want more happy people. I want happy people around me. I want people that, and I want to have that same effect on others. And sometimes I don't necessarily do that through things that in the environment create frustration for me, but I have to be careful sometimes to where I, my every, it's kind of like your interaction with the universe is like a, it's almost like a rubber band. <laughs> what you, what comes around, what they say, what comes around goes around. So if you're getting slapped in the face all the time, you might want to look at first person to look at is what you're doing. What am I doing? What have I done to cause this or not? What have I did? What did I do to what, I, what did I not do to cause this? Yeah. What was your part in it? Yeah. Yeah. Everybody. And, there, and I didn't do anything. I was just that you can have that approach, but it's not really going to put you, it puts you at a constant effect of what's going on around you. I prefer to be 
causative, even driving down the road. Yeah, you could get smashed into from somebody coming, not paying attention to, but I try to watch everybody if I'm driving, I, that type of thing. I, and I try to do that and we, it's a constant effort, but it's so I want, what I want more of is more happiness. And how do we attract that into our lives? By being, it's kind of like when I wanted to find a, I've been married now coming on 16 years and that's a constant create that in and of itself. But I realized then, cause my drug, my relationships before that were all involved drugs and alcohol. And so I didn't really know how to act when I was sober. And so I had this realization that if I wanted to have a certain type of woman or relationship, that I needed to be a certain type of person. I needed to be a person that would pull, attract that. And so that would be, you have to be willing to do the thing. I'll give you another example is walking into a store. People I always felt like people were looking at me like, what's wrong? They look at most of the time when people look at me now, they smile at me. I can always get a smile. It's, I, it's, so I must have a friendly look on my face. It's nice to get that or just walking down the street and asking someone, how are you doing? Or yeah. how's your day going? Those types of things. And you never know what kind of reaction or conversation you might get started. And it's just nice to have that conversation with a random stranger. Yeah. And it's funny because I get, it's, a, it's I, I love it because I get to work with people that are, all walks of life. I've had to be in front of folks that were first generation immigrants from Mexico, first generation immigrants from Iraq, from uh, Russia. These people are like English is their second language. And, and what I find is the people are generally, obviously cultures are different. It's respecting that, but at the same time, people generally have basic qualities that are the same. And most of the folks that I'm dealing with, they just want help. And for them to be able to, so I find that, and I think it's really cool. And I admire people that are ambitious and I admire people that are work hard. And that's what I generally find. That's what I, it is a cool thing to be able to do that. So for sure, man. And it's always nice just to, like you said, get that smile in return yeah. and see that smile on someone's face or it must also make you feel good after say doing an intervention with someone. Now, do you get a check in with them a few months down the road if they've gone to a long-term treatment or down the road? Obviously, you've probably had tons of success stories, but there's always ones that go back out because relapse is always a part of someone's recovery for a lot of the time. It's yeah, not everyone does it the first time. And it wasn't the first time for me. It took me many years. There, I keep up with people after to do, we do interventions for, we follow up with them periodically. And sometimes people will just reach out and say, hey, you know, just want to let you know that my son's doing great. I really appreciate your help. Or, and, but we also make an effort to keep, we keep people on file and we'll follow up with them every once in a while. And I got people out there that I guarantee they would be offended if they knew I was in their neighborhood <laughs> and I, I didn't come by and say hi or let them know, or they could, they would be like, what? <laughs> they, they feel like we get that kind of relationship. They want. And obviously when I go in and out, sometimes I don't have time. I've got to be focused on what I'm doing, but I like to having that type of rapport with the people. And I want them to know that this is not just a one-stop shop here. We like to, we want to hear how people are doing. So that's amazing, man. And it's nice to always follow up with your clients and just to see how they're doing and it makes their day as well, Bobby. Yeah. yeah they, 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 and that's the other thing they, you're right. They always appreciate it. They, oh man, thanks for it. How's it going? What are you, what's going on? How you doing? And, and how's Mike doing or whatever? Sometimes it's the person themselves. It, 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 the funny part about it is that 
when I go in to do the intervention, I would rather have, we've had knockdown drag outs with people. Sometimes there are extreme cases. They're not that more often than not that we know, but I would rather have somebody giving me hell <laughs> than sit there trying to tell me something that I, you just know they're trying to tell you what you, they, what you want, they think you want to hear. Yeah. I would rather than that first rodeo though. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You kind of go, yeah, then you're like, then you steer it right back to what we're there for. And then they'll still get mad. They've been for two hours. They've been thinking they've been, oh, they're really going. They, uh, okay, well, all right. Now what about this? And they'll be, then they'll start getting pissed. But I would rather, and then you know that this is how it's actually going to go. And I explained that to them. I would rather somebody jump up and punch and yell and scream and call me because I know they're emotionally invested and we're actually moving the dial. And eventually, if we hold our ground, eventually this person is going to, we have a more, better chance, statistically speaking, of this person saying yes, eventually. If we hold our ground, not forcefully, just, hey, I've had people, one, a, a Dominican Republican family from up around Philadelphia once, New Jersey, Philadelphia. Anyway, they it was like eight hours of knockdown, broken furniture, holes in the wall. You know, and we never did introduce the consequences because I was... <clears throat> they, they look at me. I'm like, not yet. No. And because the guy that we were trying to help was a special forces guy. He'd been in the military and his brothers were holding him back and he was trying to leave. And, and he did no, you're not leaving until we come to a resolution about if not, we're not until we settle this. And should we tell him? Should we, and, you know, every once in a while they had whispered to me, should we? I said, no, not yet. We're not going to tell him yet. Yeah. And finally, after about eight, eight hours, he gave, just gave in and said, all right, I'll go. <laughs> and he looked, oh, by then all the flights were gone. And he said, so I'm going to go home and I'm going to come back and get you tomorrow. And we'll go to the airport. And I'm thinking to myself, this is never going to happen. And the sister, the oldest sister said, no, he said he would go. He's, this is going to happen. I said, okay, just, I'm just, so the next day I'll be dang. The guy showed up in his car <laughs> and drove us to the airport. It was great. It was wonderful. Yeah, but there was eight hours of hell. Hell. Yeah. And, but yeah, you can tell he never did anything to hurt his family. He could have done things that were from a hand to hand combat or whatever. I'm sure he's trained in. He never did anything like that. He would wrestle around, he would push them, and he would try to get by them, or he would try to open the door, and they would shut it. And But he never tried to hurt any of his family. So you could tell, and, he, and at the end of the day, he was very appreciative of that, you know? Yeah, but he's just, it was had to be on his terms, though, too. Like most things, for most people, you have to let them do it on their terms. Yeah. For the most part, unless they're getting out of hand or whatever, but until someone really wants it or willing to turn their life over or willing to admit they have a problem, there's not much you can do. That's right. That's another great point that you bring up that I even coach the families on. There's a little, there's going to be a point here that we may need to give a little bit. Now we can't be reasonable and say, oh, I'll let you go in two days or next week, or, oh, I'm going to go do that. We've got to be, but if we need to give a little bit to get his acceptance, I'll make the call. I'll make the judgment call because I'll go tell him, look, you know, I know you want to do, I'll even say, look, I'll, I know you want to do this. I feel it's either, and they, I, sometimes they won't even say anything. And I'm like, I take that as a yes. I was like, I know you want to do this. So how can we meet in the middle here? And they'll, sometimes they'll give a ridiculous response and I'll say, no, and when we're not, I can't do that, man. I said, here's what I can do. And I'll give them something. 
they'll they'll usually try to say okay and then we'll so if i could do that for you. opiate people guys oh uh, they'll they're scared to death with a withdrawal they're scared to death of it and i'm like do what do we need to do here we're looking at a couple of hours and when's the last time you used when are you going to start getting sick what do we need to do here to, to make this as comfortable as possible for you and they'll tell me they'll say oh i need this and i'm like oh if I, don't know if I can make that happen or not, but if I can make that happen, I said, it's a dicey situation. It's a gray area for me because I'm the treatment professional, but if we got to travel through the gray area to get out of the danger zone, I make, I'm okay with that, <laughs> but don't, I'll work with you here, but you gotta, and we can usually put something together and they'll, well, once they, then they'll, a lot of times they'll look at me and get a sigh of relief on their face and go, I'm like, okay. And I know then that. They're being genuine at that point too. It's a genuine concern. All right, let's work on this together, man. This is like, you know, and they'll, they'll go for it. So I love that, man. I love that. Just working together, working with one another instead of against one another, Bobby. Yeah. Growing requires humility. Yeah. What do you do to stay humble? Me, I'll tell you what I do. I have a trainer that I've realized from a physical standpoint, I was, and I needed somebody to really kick my ass on physically. And he's about six foot five and he weighs about 270 and he's a professional boxer. <laughs> so he's also a tree, he owns a gym, but he's, he does high intensity training and stuff. And I go to those classes, but he also gets out there and he'll spar with me. <laughs> I know you think you're a tough guy. This guy's like, his hands is, I have pretty good big hands, but he's, Shaking hands with him is like shaking hands with a baseball glove. <laughs> for me, that's very humbling. I'm like, he's a nice guy. I love him to death. For about 45 minutes a day, he's an asshole. <laughs> nice, <man. laughs> so He'll get out there with the glove, and he's got these uh, sparring gloves. I've got the punch, uh, boxing. And those things have these little uh, hard edges on them where you punch the pad, and he'll go in and he'll be okay going through the different jabs. And then he'll, every once in a while, he'll reach around and he'll get me in the ribs and remind me that <laughs> I have an open spot. <laughs> you're so tired. You can't, you're supposed to, I'm te teaching me how to do this and that. And so that's humbling. And it's kind of, it's little things like that. So, yeah. So I, I don't necessarily do that. There's lots of things that happen along the way that keep you in check, but that's one of them. That's amazing, man. And before we go, though, I appreciate you coming on the show today, Bobby, and just sharing a little bit about your story, sharing a little bit about what you do and some stories of others that you've helped. Truly appreciate that, man. It's nice to see you doing the things you're doing for others out in the community abroad, across the country and stuff like that, helping them get better, helping them get into treatment and stuff. Thank you. Where can anyone find you if they'd like to, and I don't think you're huge on social media or anything, but you, but where can anyone find you if they'd like to contact you or maybe get in touch with you to have you on their show or do an interview with you or anything like that, man? They, they could go to my website, newmaninterventions.com. They can also call 866-989-4499 and reach me. Now I've got people that answer my phone. You're right. I do a little, I have a little bit of, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I don't have somebody managing those accounts for me. I'm a one man band in that regard. So eventually I'll get big like that. But where, where can they find you on Instagram if they'd like to follow you? That's well, let me, <laughs> let me look at Insta. It's Newman intervention. They can just type in. Okay. Intervention. Yeah. Uh, yeah it's Perfect. A, yeah. So Alrighty. I'm happy we got the chance to have you on the show today. It was awesome talking with you, Bobby. I took away a few things from the show about helping others, being happy and making other people smile and stuff like that. That's what it's all about in life, man. Just being kind to one another. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's my, I don't know. I just feel like that people 
most people are nice people. Most people get in their own way. The majority of us are nice people and we get, sometimes can get in our own way because we're either A, afraid of what somebody might think, or the truth is we just try it. Say hi to somebody. Maybe you might say hi to five people and maybe one of them's not a nice person or having a bad day. Let's give them that. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Say they're happy. Hey, don't know what it is walking in their shoes, what's going on. And that's okay. Yeah. We don't know what's happening. Just be friendly. And if I'm, if I'm not getting those responses and I don't necessarily go out of my way to get those responses, we were walking out of a restaurant last night and my son was my, I have an 11 year old and he was talking about, we're supposed to go out this door. We were going out the door and we came in, <laughs> there was another door. We're supposed to go out this door. And he goes, no, we're go out this door. And it was funny. We were joking around a little bit. And there was somebody sitting outside and he was smoking a cigarette and he started laughing. He goes, well, glad you guys got that straight. <laughs> so, you know, he was just watching us and he was laughing. So it was kind of cool. And we're like, yeah, I guess we can get on with the rest of our lives now. So yeah. it was like, he's just, okay. We he made him giggle. And <laughs> so anyway, it was fun. Well, thank you again for coming on the show. I truly appreciate it, man. It was great chatting with you today, Bobby. And I hope you have an amazing rest of your day. Thank you for having me and you as well. Thank you.